So reading the whole of chapter 18 of 2 Kings, page 275. In the third year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Hosea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria, sorry, Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Hoshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Halah, in Gozan and the Habor River, and in the towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant. All that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. The king of Assyria extracted, sorry, exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah, king of Judah, stripped off the gold with which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king and Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have strategy and military strength, but you speak only empty words. 
On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria. I will give you 2,000 horses, if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, I have, come to, have I come to attack and destroy this place without a word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life and not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, The Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepavim, Hina and Eva? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. Let us come to the Lord. Our gracious and eternal God, we thank you so much for your precious word. We thank you that you have put, out, put your word in our homes, in our churches and in our hearts. And we thank you for the power of your word that it divides between soul and spirit and joint and marrow. 
And this morning as we open these passages from uh, your book of two kings, we pray that you'll open the eyes of our hearts to hear you speak to us. Open our minds. Help us to understand the message that you have for us today and not only understand it, but indeed to be able to apply it to our lives for the glory of your holy name. Take away the things of yesterday and the things of tomorrow and help us to see you in all your glory and majesty as we look at these passages from your word. We pray these things in the precious and powerful name of Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord. Amen. Last year, our son and his wife began looking to buy their first home. They looked around in Sydney, but prices were too high for them down there, so they moved up to the central coast and uh, looked around there. And with a family of three children, they, um, they needed a, a reasonably large home and they were hoping to be able to buy a four-bedroom home. But they looked around for some months and as you will all imagine, it became increasingly difficult. The prices were too high, they'd gone to their bank, the bank had told them how much they could borrow and they knew what their limit was. Eventually, they found a four-bedroom home on the central coast and it was a bit above their price, but they were able to negotiate and haggle a little bit with the vendor. And eventually they agreed on a price. And they were very excited because they could afford this, this home this, and this price. And um, so they, they were really excited about the whole prospect, their first home. So the next step was to go to, uh, to have a pest inspection done. So they contacted their friendly pest inspector who came and spent a few hours in the house and to their great disappointment he gave them the report which was not so good. Although there was no structural damage there were many parts of the building that were infested with white ants. What were they to do? It was a difficult decision. They wanted this house, they'd fallen in love with it, it's the only one they could afford. And they talked at length with the pest inspector. And he suggested that they might spend a little bit more money and find out where the white ants' nests were and look at the seriousness of the problem and, and perhaps just, just how much it might cost to rectify it, bearing in mind that there was no structural damage to the building. So this is what they decided to do. So the pest inspector went out and searched for the nests and he found in the backyard a pile of cut uh, firewood together with two dead trees. And you guessed it, that's where the nests were. So he was able to eradicate them, to get rid of those nests and he set about looking at the prospect of repairing the damage in the house. And it wasn't going to be a huge job. So they they proceeded with the purchase. So by the removal of the timber in the backyard and the dead trees, the nests were destroyed, the white ants were killed, and the repair work could begin. This is what the new king, Hezekiah, king of Judah, did. He removed all that was causing the trouble in Judah, and he set about doing his repair work. So after many wicked kings of both Israel in the northern kingdom, Judah in the south, 
We now come to a time of revival. But the question on our lips is, for how long? Will Judah suffer the same fate as the northern kingdom? We read last, year, last week how Assyria exiled Israel because of their sin, their idolatry, and their failure to honour the God of the universe. The question on our lips is, will God judge Judah or will they be spared? Well, in the four chapters that we have before us, uh, 2 Kings chapters 18, 19, and 20, and 21, we're looking at three kings, the reign of three kings, King Hezekiah, Manasseh, and Amon. So I encourage you to open your Bibles. I don't have the page number, I'm sorry. 275, thank you. And, and uh, there is a sermon outline that you might like to follow also. We can't help but feeling, as we read these passages, and we only read the one chapter, we didn't read the others, of course, because we don't have the time, but the tension is mounting. And, and we're reading them, and we're, we're sort of, what's going to happen? Will Judah be saved, or will they end up like the northern kingdom, exiled to Assyria? I've entitled the sermon, The Good, the Bad and the Ugly. And we're going to look at three aspects. The good ministry of King Hezekiah, the lapse in his ministry, which, um, which I've called the bad part of his ministry, and the third point, the ugly kings that followed him. So let's look at Hezekiah. The good, his good ministry. In the passage that Joe read before us in uh, chapter 18, we see there that Hezekiah was a great reformer. He was so different from the previous kings and so utterly different from his father Ahaz. We heard about Ahaz in the last week, just how wicked he was and how he took the people of God away from God. But Hezekiah was different. He ruled Judah alone for 29 years from 716 BC just after uh, Assyria had conquered the uh, the northern kingdom and we read I'm reading from verse we read verse 5 tells us that he trusted in the Lord the God of Israel there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before him or after him read with me as we read verses 3 and 4 this is what he did he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake that Moses had made, up, made. For up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehushtan. Going on to verse 6, he held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses, and the Lord was with him. He was successful in whatever he undertook. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him. From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. But not only, that's a, a very brief summary of his radical reforms. But in 2 Chronicles, the three chapters, 29, 30 and 31, the writer fleshes them out even more and tells us that he purified the temple, he reinstituted the celebration of the Passover and he assigned the priests and the Levites their duties. 
this is pretty radical stuff that Hezekiah did. But how do his reforms apply to us today? What can we learn from his radical actions? Or perhaps is this just an interesting part of the, of the history of Israel? Well, to answer these questions, we need to understand the problem in Judah and indeed the problem today, even within some of the believing community of God. You see, in Judah, they were worshipping false gods. They were worshipping idols. They were worshipping Baal. They were worshipping the creation rather than the creator. They even were worshipping the bronze snake that Moses uh, that God commanded Moses to make in their trips through the wilderness. Remember, we remember there that because of their rebellion, God raised up snakes who bit them and many of them died because of their rebellion. God said to Moses, make a bronze snake and if the people, when they're bitten by the snake, look to this in faith and know that I will save them, I will heal them, they will be healed. But what were the people doing? They were worshipping this bronze snake, worshipping an aid to worship. They had set up their own gods. They were not keeping the commands that the Lord had given to Moses. In short, they'd snubbed their noses at God. They were religious people, of course they were religious. They were religiously worshipping the Baals and, and all these idols up on the hills, the Asherah poles, the sacred stones, all worshipping them. Well, that doesn't apply to us today, does it? Because we don't worship sacred stones and Asherah poles. We wouldn't dream of worshipping the sun or the moon or the starry hosts, would we? We wouldn't dream of worshipping any aids to worship, would we? Or would we? Many people today are religious people. They religiously do things that are not godly. I know of a man who is so in love with his car, he worships his car. He polishes his car every second or third day. If the car gets caught out in the rain, boy, the next hour or so is getting it dry again and polishing it again. He worships his car. And there are many in our society who, who, who have these religious idols that worship. Some people worship um, power, money, greed, affluence, homes, grandchildren. Just as the pest inspector had to destroy the white ant's nest, we have to remove the things or the people or the events in our lives that take us away from the Lord. As the writer to the letter to the Hebrews said in chapter 12 and verse 1, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Throw off everything that hinders. There are things in our lives that are hindering our walk with the Lord. They may not and probably are not sinful in themselves just like the Asherah poles and the sacred stones back in Judah's days. They weren't sinful in themselves. It's how the people treated them. They worshipped them. 
And if there are things or people or events in our lives that hinder our walk with God, throw them off. And the sin that so easily entangles, and we all know that we get caught up in things that we don't often even recognise. And when we do this, the Lord, by his Holy Spirit, will begin the repair work. So Hezekiah, by his reforms, turned around the nation of Judah, and they once again worshipped the God of the heavens and the earth. Hezekiah trusted implicitly in the Lord. He did away with the alliance that his father Ahaz had made with the king of Assyria. You know, he was paying him off, paying him through the... He did away with that. He did away with the alliance that had been made with the Egyptians. But we read, of course, you may have uh, thought for one moment when we read verses 13 to 16 of chapter 18 that he had paid out, out the king of Assyria. Well, he had to because of the promise that his father had made. He paid him out and cleared, cleared the, the, the slate and set off again. He turned the nation around. He trusted God and he was firm in his resolve to have the Judean people honour their God. But it wasn't easy. He was continually plagued by difficulties. The Assyrians were threatening to attack Judah. Remember, only six years before he reigned alone, they had conquered the northern kingdom. The king of Assyria, it was a new king then, King Sennacherib, he sent a message to Hezekiah and said, look, you might as well give up. Surrender. We'll take you over. And a little later, he threatened him again. Hezekiah had seen how powerful the Assyrian army was. He had seen how determined the kings of Assyria were. because he had seen cart off the people of the northern kingdom of Israel in exile. The king said through his messengers to Hezekiah, who are you relying on? Are you relying on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it? Are you relying on the Egyptians? No way, they're not going to help you. Or are you relying on the Lord? Oh, come on. Come on, the, the king of Assyria said. Don't be so silly to rely on the Lord. You've smashed his worship high places. You've cut them down, the Asherah poles. Anyway, it was the Lord who told me to come and march against you. What lies, what rubbish, because the Ju people of Judah were not worshipping the God of the heavens and earth and those Asherah poles and up on top of the hills. They were worshipping false gods. Sennacherib's got it all wrong, but he's trying to trick them. And he's trying to say, look, it's, it's the, your God who told me to march against you. Make peace with Assyria and no life. If you resist, he said, you will only know death. Sennacherib even offered Hezekiah's servants um, a promised land. He said to them, you know, we'll be a plan. You'll eat of your own fig trees and your own vines. You, you'll have your own cisterns to draw water from. It'll be a land, promised land, just like the promised land. So Hezekiah faced a huge test. But he stood firm to the Lord. And we just stop there and just think of our own situation. Because we too 
must realise that our enemy will try the same tricks. Satan will try everything he can to undermine your faith, your life, your hope, your future. If you just come and sit in the pew Sunday after Sunday, he won't worry you too much at all. But when you start to get serious about your growing relationship with the Lord, he will start to get serious also. He will try every trick in the book to take you away from the Lord. He too, just like the, the king of Assyria, will distort the truth and he'll make ridiculous promises. He will deceive you and put fear into your hearts. He will make you doubt your faith. He'll tell you, tell you, look, you're not good enough for God. Who do you think you are? You're not one of God's children. Look how you're behaving. He will make you despair when things don't go exactly as you would like them to. Hezekiah stood firm in his trust. But we read in chapter 19 that he grieved, tearing his clothes and putting on sackcloth. He trusted in the Lord, but bear in mind, this, he was a human king. He, although he trusted in the Lord, he was still worried about this threat. He knew the Lord would deliver him, but he was perhaps worried about the machinations of it all. So what did he do? What did this godly king do? He went into the temple of the Lord and sent for the prophet of God, Isaiah. He prayed and he sought the counsel of the Lord. And when we too are threatened by the evil one, when we are put to similar tests, when the evil one confronts us and sticks his face in ours, we too must go to the Lord in his word and in prayer and for his counsel, the counsel of the Holy Spirit. Because when things are not exactly as we think, as we would like, we are to go to his word and have God speak to us by his spirit. And we speak to him in prayer. So as Hezekiah ran to the Lord, we are to run to Jesus and come in prayer. Corrie ten Boom once asked, Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tyre? I've got to ask myself that question. It's a good question, isn't it? Ask yourself this week. Is prayer your steering wheel or is it your spare tyre? Well, we continue on in chapter 19 and we read Isaiah's words to Hezekiah against Assyria. Hezekiah had gone to him, he, he was distraught, he was worried for his people. And chapter 19, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah said, or the Lord said, Do not be afraid of what you have heard, those words with which the underlings of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Listen, I am going to put such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, he will return to his own country, and there I will have him cut down with the sword. Hezekiah took Sennacherib's second threat. He took the letter into the temple and he prayed to the Lord. And I'm reading from verse 15 of chapter 19 also. Hezekiah's prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. 
You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, are Lord, O Lord, are God. Let me read the last verse again. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. As we pause at that stage, let us remind ourselves that everything is all of God. It's not about us. It's about the glory of God. As Hezekiah recognised, the delivery of the people from the king of Assyria was for God's glory. Sure, it assisted them, but the primary reason is for the glory of God. And indeed today, as the whole of the Bible, New and Old Testament, tell us that our salvation is for the glory of God. Of course, we benefit because we enter into the kingdom of God, but it is for his glory. Read Ezekiel chapter 36 and see this. We discussed this at length at Bible study just a couple of weeks ago. It's all for God. The answer to the first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is the chief end of man? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. But it's one thing, to glorify God is our chief purpose. And when we do that, we will enjoy him forever. So Isaiah spoke strongly against the king of Assyria, and he encouraged Hezekiah in verse 31, for out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. And the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So what happened? Did God answer his prayer? Chapter 19, verses 35 to 37. I won't read them, I'll just summarise them. You can read them later. One night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. When the others woke up in the morning, there were all these dead bodies because of their terrible, their failure to honour God. And not only that, but indeed some years later when Sennacherib, the terrible wicked king, wicked king, went to his own temple, the temple of his God, his own two sons came there and slew him with a sword. What was it we read that Isaiah said years earlier to Hezekiah, chapter 19, verse 7? Listen, I am going to put a, such a spirit in him that when he hears a certain report, the death of all the army, he will return to his own country. And that's what he did. He fled. And there I will have him cut down by the sword. So where are we now? The Assyrian army is rout, has been routed. Sennacherib is dead. And the threat has passed. And Judah continues in revival. The Lord is king and the people are obedient. 
But the question remains and the tension mounts. For how long is this going to happen? In the beginning of chapter 20, we read that Hezekiah falls ill. He was told to put his house in order. I hope we're all putting our houses in order. We don't have to wait until we fall ill. We're putting our house in order right now. We're getting ourselves right with God now. So he's told to do that. So the tension is there. Shock, horror. What's going to happen? Judah's future is again hanging in the balance. What will the next king be like? Well, Hezekiah pleads with God and he recovers under the Lord's hand and the Lord gave him 15 more years. And this this is great news for the people of Judah. A faithful, God-honouring king for 15 more years. Let's not miss the point there. That even a king who has done what is good, all the reforms, bringing the people back to God, even that king only survives because of God's grace. And let us remind ourselves that you and I are only here today. You and I have only come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ only by his grace. It's nothing you've done. It's nothing I've done. It's nothing we'll ever do. If we relied even 1% for our salvation on what we do, every single one of us would fail. As Paul said to the Ephesians in chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9, my paraphrase is, and the emphasis is on the prepositions, we are saved by the Almighty God, sorry, we are saved by the grace of the Almighty God through faith in Jesus Christ for good works. By grace, through faith, for good works. So having considered the good work of reformation done by Hezekiah under the hand of the Lord, we now turn to the lapse in his ministry. I called it his bad aspect. In chapter 20, verse 12, the son of the king of Babylon sent get well cards and a gift to Hezekiah because he had heard of his illness. And how did Hezekiah respond? He took them on a tour of his treasury. Look at all my treasures. Look what I've achieved. Look at all my armoury. Hezekiah had become complacent. Complacent in his relationship with the Lord. Complacent with the victory that God had given him over the Assyrians. And this complacency led to his pride. Look at all my treasures. Look at me. Look how great I am. Isaiah heard what Hezekiah had done and rebuked him and he told him that the Babylonians would take over and conquer the the nation of Judah some time later. Hezekiah heard the words of the prophet but he was only concerned with the events of his lifetime. As he said in verse 19, chapter 20, will there not be peace and security in my lifetime? Did this king do anything to preserve the faithfulness of the people after his death? You see, his complacency, his pride had blinded him. So after 15 years, the time the Lord, extra time the Lord gave him, he died. We too must ensure that we don't become complacent in our walk with the Lord. That we don't become 
smug with our with our with our worship, our fellowship in his church, that we don't think that we've got it all together, that we're right, everything's fine and dandy. Because like Hezekiah, our achievements, our faith, our ministry, our worship are all of God. It is only by his spirit that we have received a new heart and our new creations in Christ. It is only by his spirit that we have been adopted as sons and daughters of the one true living God. It is only by his spirit that we serve him in the ministry of his church and beyond. Because all of that work, all of that ministry was prepared by him beforehand, before the clocks even started to tick. Read that in Ephesians 2 verse 10. We must not become smug. We must not become complacent. Because it leads to pride, and pride is the mother of all sin. So back to Hezekiah. What about the revival that we've just experienced, we've just been through? There was a lapse in his ministry, but Hezekiah is now dead. Once again, we've got these tensions as we read the text. Will the next king, his son Manasseh, continue the Reformation? Well, the early verses of chapter 21 give us the answer. Just looking at them briefly, verse 2, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Verse 3, he rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He erected altars to Baal. He bowed down to the starry host. He was worshipping the sun, the moon and the stars. He built altars in the temple. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Practiced sorcery and divination. Consulted mediums and spiritists. And this is the ugly side. This is the son of Hezekiah. He drastically reversed the policies of his father. And he was known as the villain in Judah's last days. And eventually he collided head on with God's prophets. And after the longest reign in Judah's history, 55 years, he died and his son Amon took over. And here the old adage, like father, like son, applies. Together, their abominable reigns made divine judgment on Judah inevitable. And we read that in chapter 25, where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, routing Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and carting the people off in exile. The highway of sin has only one destination. So what can we learn from Hezekiah's brief reforms and, and, and the downfall brought about by his son and his grandson? What can we learn about that? Well, so far, we've been encouraged to remove the dead wood in our lives, the, the things that are causing us trouble, the things that are standing in the way of our growing relationship with the Lord. We've been encouraged to trust implicitly in the Lord and not our own power or possessions or our own intelligence or smartness. We've been encouraged to discern the enemy's tricks as he tries to take us away from the Lord and to go to the Lord in his word and in prayer in times of darkness and despair. And we've been warned not to become complacent and proud in our walk with the King. So we've come to a sad ending to what started off so positively. 
But we, like Hezekiah, know that our God is a faithful God. Our God can be trusted. And from the beginning of time, he has promised that he would separate for himself a people. And the entire Old Testament points to the king who will not waver, the one who will gloriously redeem his people, the one, the king, who cannot ever be compromised, the one who is prophet and priest and king, the one through perfect one who gave his life, volunteered his life on that cruel wooden cross and became the perfect sacrifice for all of God's people. The king who will never, ever become complacent or proud. You can discern in the readings here that when God told Hezekiah that he would recover from his illness, he said in three days you'll be well again, you'll walk into the temple. And in three days after the Romans had killed the Lord Jesus, he rose again from the tomb. This king will reign eternally and he will sit on God's throne and he is your king and my king, your Lord and my Lord. He is your saviour and my saviour. No Manassas, no Amons of this world will ever thwart his ministry. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people will say, Amen, Amen, and Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the power of your word, for your wonderful word, for the encouragements that you give us, for the challenges that you issue to each one of us. And we pray today that we will take hold of those challenges, take hold of the encouragements, and we will walk more closely with you, that we will learn from this King Hezekiah, and we will learn from the mistakes of his son and grandson. Lord God, we pray that you'll lead, guide and direct us. For Christ's sake. Amen.